Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 33. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. He was from the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Revelation chapter 4, verses 9 through 11. And whenever the creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. Our reading from Luke today, Luke chapter 1. It's a very special moment in which the angel appears, the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Earlier on in Luke chapter 1, this same angel appeared to a priest of the temple named Zechariah, Mary's cousin's husband. And he didn't believe the testimony of the angel. And one of my favorite moments in the scripture is in verse 19 of chapter 1. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and bring you the good news. I was reading it this week. I've, I've, I posted on Facebook, and it's a challenge for you today as well. Every day in December, read a chapter in Luke. So that by the time we get to Christmas Eve service, you will have gone through the whole gospel, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This frames Christmas. Christmas is not just about the baby. It's about why the baby came. Right here, where Zechariah does not believe him. I was reading this again this last week, and it gave me chills up my spine, because Gabriel is saying here, you don't think God can do this? I stand in his presence. You know how big our God is? Any clue? Any, any conception? Angels. Angels are terrifying creatures. You know, this angel appears to Mary, and she's like, I don't know what kind of thing, what kind of, what kind of uh, message this is going to be. Other times when angels appear to people, they have to say the first words out of their mouth, don't be afraid. These great, great creatures, for instance, in Isaiah chapter 6, they have six wings. With two, they're covering their feet. With two, they're flying. And with two, they're covering their faces. Because even they cannot look into the glory of God. 
I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. That's kind of, that's in, in uh, preaching terms, we call that that's free, meaning it's not part of my message, but it's a, a great point nonetheless. When it comes to Christmas, what are the essentials? You know, there's so many different parts in Christmas, right? We have decorating. Uh, what's an essential for at your house? Is it the Christmas tree, the garland, um, the nativity scene? Maybe you have different things. Maybe you have a special, you know, really creepy Santa doll that has to come out. Oh, that's just me. Never mind. Um, how about when it comes to music? What are your favorite Christmas songs? Maybe it's Jingle Bells. It's probably not Good King Wesselis, which was a song that I always tried to make my choir director have us sing, and he always said no. I talk about decorations. When it comes to faith, however, Christmas essentials. We have the nativity. We have the wise men who didn't show up until years after Jesus was born. But they had this desire that they wanted to see the king. It was so interesting about that story. They go to Jerusalem and they ask, they ask the teachers of the law there, where will he be born? And they're like, Bethlehem. But none of them, show, none of them go with the wise men. They have this great desire. Where is this king going to be born? Mary and Joseph, of course, the shepherds and the angels. Oh, yeah, and baby Jesus. But that's not the only essentials of Christmas because Jesus didn't stay a baby. You know, the world, the unbelieving world wants Jesus to stay a baby. Just to be an inspiration of good feelings and warm yuletide um, um, feelings. However, he doesn't stay a baby. And Christmas isn't only about baby Jesus, but King Jesus. Here at Faith Church, we sing an old Christmas hymn this time of year that's been modernized. Come thou long expectant Jesus. This was a hymn by Charles Wesley, one of the great hymn writers of, of, of his time. And this hymn actually did not have a lot of traction. A lot of people, I guess, just didn't care at the time. And then Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, mentions this, and it became a hit. Come thou long expectant Jesus. This is the major theme of the Old Testament, the intertestamental period, and the time of Christ. The desire, when will the Messiah come? They had the patriarchs. That's the fathers of the Jewish people. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were a beginning, but not the beginning. They had the judges. Men like Samson, like Gideon, who delivered Israel from oppressors, but every generation a new oppressor would come. When would be the judge who judges in righteousness? Not just for one generation, but for all generations. They had kings. In fact, they, they were begging for a human king in, in the first part of Samuel. And Samuel, the prophet and the judge, he kind of took it personally, but God said, they have not rejected you, they've rejected me. So yes, I will give them a king. And their second king, David, he promises David that a descendant of his would be on the throne forever. But more than that, in the songs of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus said, David is not speaking of himself, but of his Lord, Jesus Christ. Come thou long expected father of what is everlasting, who judges, the, who judges with righteousness and saves from sin. Come, thou long expectant king. Jesus was born a child, yes, 
but he was, is, and will always be king forever. So speaking of kings, what do kings do? That's easy. They do whatever they want. Do you know what subjects in a kingdom do? They do whatever the king wants. There have been many folks who have thought of themselves as kings. One such man was King Nebuchadnezzar, we read about in the book of Daniel. You know, he thought he was a captain of his own soul, king of the world. Move over, Leonardo DiCaprio. We have a new king of the world at the bow of the ship. It's Nebuchadnezzar. He looks at his kingdom, and he's like, has there ever been a nation like Babylon? It's amazing. And God strikes him at that moment, loses his mind. He goes around naked, eating grass like he's a cow. It's kind of funny, because in Babylonian history, there's a seven-year gap which is probably pretty smart. I wouldn't even address it, too, if I was them. In fact, I'd try to be like, anybody who wants to come visit, why don't you wait a while? Because if you come and visit, it's like, what's that madman doing in the palace? That's our king. Why is he mooing? I don't know. But he's our king. What are we supposed to do? Nebuchadnezzar, he comes back to his senses, and this is what he says in Daniel chapter 4, verse 34. He finally realizes who's the true king, and it wasn't him. At, that, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven. And the people of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Who wears the crown at Christmas? It's not Santa. He has a hat, not a crown. It's the one who wears the crown all year round. We tend to want Jesus to stay a baby, chubby and cute. But as Pastor John MacArthur said, the shadow of the cross looms over the manger. When you understand that, you understand Christmas. There's one thing I would add to that, not that that's not awesome. It's what the angel said to Mary. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He is on the throne. He is on the throne. Many people don't want him on the throne. They do not want him wearing the crown. In the book, The Lord of the Rings, there is a side plot during the whole span of the books. And it's about the ranger from the north, Aragorn. He is of a line that has been broken of kings of Gondor. And the problem is that people don't want the king to return. They don't want the king. In fact, one of his companions, who is the son of the steward, says to him, Gondor has no king. Gondor needs no king. In real life, when Jesus stood before Pilate, and Pilate said to the people, Shall I crucify your king? They told him, We have no king but Caesar. I can distill all the problems of the entire world throughout all of history into this one phrase, we have no king but. The government, Caesar, whomever else other than God. That's the source of all problems. Source of all, all issues. Even as a believer, when we do not allow the kingship of Jesus Christ over an area of our life, for there's no area where a God who is sovereign over all, Christ who is sovereign over all, does not look at and say, mine, for us to say, no, mine. Don't go there, Jesus. We are saying, I have no king, and I need no king. I have no king, but fill in the blank. 
We want to be the kings and queens of our own life, and we think that is freedom, but truly it is, sa- is slavery. We want to be the one who wears the crown. But the only crown that is worthy of wearing is the ones that are given to us. And the one who holds all the crowns is the one who is in the manger during Christmas. Today is a tale of two crowns in two ways. In one sense, it's concerning the words that we translate in the New Testament as crown. The first one, I believe I have a slide here, Stephanos. Stephanos. If your name, actually, I don't know if anybody here's name is Stephen or Stephanie, or if you know it's Stephen or Stephanie, it comes from this word right here, Stephanos. Stephanos is a mark of, a, of royal or, in general, exalted rank. So if you had a crown, it could mean that you are, in fact, a ruler, a king, prefect, whatever, or just generally you are honored. It is also the wreath of garland, which was given as a prize to the victor in the public games. Um, this is concerning the Olympics and other such games like this. Paul will talk about how everybody who competes in the games, they train. I, th- I don't think I understood that so much until I started training for the uh, two marathons that I ran. Some of you trained with me. I, I see Brent is here. You know what it's like? The commitment it takes is outrageous. The self-discipline it takes before, during that week, to be ready for these things. Those people, they would compete, and only one of them would get a perishable wreath crown on their head. The second word we have is diadem. Can you go to that side, please? Thank you very much. The diadem was a blue band marked with white, which Persian kings used to bind on the turban or tiara. This is the kingly ornament for the head, for the head, which is also known as the crown. See, in the time of in the time of the exile, for instance, and before that, mainly you had city states like Athens, Sparta, Israel, and you had and you had the kings who were there, they had crowns, they had Stephanos, but then you had these Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and they would conquer other nations. And they would wear a diadem because they were king of other nations. They were kings of kings. And the diadem could be very ornate or it could be simple, but it's what it represented, is that they were ruler over all. We have these two words for crown in the New Testament. But we also have uh, uh, two other crowns. One is the crowns that we have. The other is the crowns that Christ has. There's two ways of taking this sermon today. Either it's a two-point sermon, our crowns and Christ's crowns, or it's a seven-point sermon um, in which I explain all the crowns that we get and the crowns that Christ wore. I suggest you take it as just two points so it doesn't seem so long. Um, Two crowns, our crown and Christ's crown. So number one, our five crowns, the heavenly crowns. These are the treasure that is stored up for us in heaven. I think I have a slide about our five crowns. Your five crowns, do you give much thought to treasures in heaven? Jesus said that we should give more thought to amassing treasure in heaven than treasure here on earth. Heaven won't be the same for everyone. Some of us will have more, some of us will have less. What exactly that looks like, we don't exactly know. But what we do know is it will be worth it. Pastor Leonard Ravenhill said, 
five minutes inside of eternity, we will wish we had sacrificed more, wept more, grieved more, loved more, and prayed more, and given more. This is one of the things in my own life that God did me early on, is that I want to treasure in heaven. There are things in my life in Christ not even my wife has any clue about, because I want treasure in heaven. And I don't want the treasure here on earth. I don't want the kudos here on earth. I want treasure in heaven. I want to be passionate about treasure in heaven because the Bible tells me it's worth it. These things are amazing. And to that point, we have five crowns mentioned in the scripture that, are, that God wants to give to us that are part of our treasure in heaven. Five crowns. The first crown is the crown of life. James chapter 1, verse 12 Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under a trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested, and for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto, unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God gives us the strength to stand. The crown of life is given to those who stand under persecution. When it becomes unfashionable to be a Christian, to continue to stand for what God has said, instead of making myself the king, I bow my knee to the throne in heaven, and I withstand under persecution, and to that you will get a crown of life. In the book of Revelation, no human is honored more than the martyrs. The word martyr does not mean somebody who dies for their faith. That's what it means for us today. The word martyr comes from the Greek, martis, which means to witness. That is because in the first century, to be a witness of Jesus Christ, to say, Jesus Christ is Lord, he has done something in my life. He has brought me from death to life. It was, so, it was synonymous with giving your life for your faith that martyr has now become that. No person is honored more than the martyrs in Revelation. They have a crown of life. Jesus promised to give us strength when we come across trials of all sorts. Not to worry about what we will say when we are brought before magistrates and kings, but that he would fill our mouth. To the one who endures to the point of death, he gives a crown of life. Even if even those who do not suffer martyrdom, we still have to look forward to a, for us a crown of life because it is the prize for those who stand under persecution. It's easy to testify in church, but when you testify in a hostile world, that's when things get crazy. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in human pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. The one who stands in the day of evil gets the crown of life. That's the first crown. The second crown is the incorruptible crown. 1 Corinthians 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 25. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. There's an imperishable crown that, could be, that can be ours when we are self-disciplined, when the, we allow the fruit of the Spirit to flow in us and through us. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. 
The crown is for those who obey the Lord's command and made self-sacrifice and discipline their life to live for God. They took seriously the command to store up treasures in heaven. This was Paul's concern. Many people, their concern is financial. But Paul had no concerns financially because he learned the secret to be content with whether little or more. Now, Paul had a much different concern. His concern is that he had spent so much time teaching other people about the gospel and discipling them that he himself would lose out on the prize. He talks about people in the Olympic Games, and I talked about this just a second ago, about training for the marathon this last year. It takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time. Others who are training with me, they talk about, yeah, you do one of those long runs, and you're done for the day. And you burn the equivalent of like 2,000 calories on some of these long runs. Like the marathon was 4,000 calories. I'm done for the day. I don't get a lot done. And I can't imagine what it's like for those who are in the Olympic Games. I was just, I just heard this thing about a person who was doing one of those mega marathons, like 200 miles, and she was talking about how like the rabbits start talking to her, like <laughs> start hallucinating. The self-discipline is incredible. And Paul says, that's the kind of discipline I need to have because when I'm done preaching to others, I don't want to do anything. I just want to, you know, live my life or whatever. He's like, I have to be self-disciplined. I have to make sure my relationship with Christ is current. I have to make sure my devotion to Christ is applicable and alive and active because I can't just, I can't, my personal relationship with Christ can't be me, him, and you. It has to be me and him as well. As your pastor, this is something every week I have to struggle with because it's easy for me just to dive into my study just for you and not for me. But I know if I want the imperishable crown, I have to make sure my relationship with Jesus Christ is current. This is probably one of the saddest things when you look at pastors who fall away. It's because they forgot. They were running their race and they forgot to, be this, to have this discipline that their own spiritual life was important and they start stepping away from accountability. They start stepping away from being church, church people. And they lose their chance at that reward. It's an eternal reward. There's an incorruptible crown for those who are self-disciplined, who devotional life is current. There's also a crown of righteousness. Like all these crowns, they are not exactly earned through human effort, but they are a reward for submission to Christ. You are not righteous on your own, but God has made you the righteousness of Christ. This is the further reward of a crown for those who submit and follow the Holy Spirit's work in and through them. 2 Timothy 4.8 Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only me, but for, those, for all those who have loved his appearing. His appearing. You know, every, right now we talk about things like Emmanuel, but Emmanuel joy is not just for Christmas time, it's for all other times. Joseph, Mary's betrothed, had a dream in which an angel appeared to him. He told him not to send her away because what was being done in her was of the Holy Spirit. He also told him that Jesus would be called Emmanuel. All of the Bible, all of human history and beyond can be summed up in that one word, Emmanuel, because Emmanuel means God with us. The one with the crown of righteousness does not receive it by working really hard, but by all who love his appearing. All who love his appearing. 
the true meaning of Christmas? This is a question that's, that gets asked a lot, primarily in Hallmark movies and the Charlie Brown Christmas special. What is the true meaning of Christmas? It's this, to love his appearing. To love his appearing. Jesus, greater than the angels, greater than the patriarchs and kings, the eternal Son of God, wreathed in flesh. The true meaning of Christmas is, the, is to love his appearing. For all, for all who do love his appearing have a crown of righteousness. Do you, do you get excited for the things of the Lord anymore? Do you get excited for Jesus? I don't know everyone's testimony, but let me tell you some of mine. When the Lord first saved me, I was so excited about the things of Jesus. You could have told me, jump off the roof and you'll get more of God. And I would have pole vaulted off the roof. Now, no question, because I just wanted more of God. I was so desperate, so excited for that. Do you still have that excitement? Can you remember a time, maybe a camp, convention, maybe a church service, where God just really spoke to you? Are you cultivating that? Are you practicing the presence? Or are you allowing it to grow cold? Because the crown of righteousness is for those who love his appearing. Not loved his appearing. Love his appearing. We have the crown of glory. The crown of glory, which is also called the shepherd's crown, is for elders and pastor teachers. This is the crown I want. First Peter 5, 4. He's instructing elders. Elders is another word we'll have for pastor in the New Testament as well. It is for all those who lead, all those who teach, all those who instruct others in the word. And First Peter 5, 4, Peter says this, And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. This is the shepherd's crown. This was part of Peter's instruction to the elders slash pastors he was writing to. Teachers, pastors, and elders are judged more harshly than others. They also have an opportunity for reward, too. So much more important than running a movement or a massive church or whatever have you is being a faithful messenger of Jesus Christ to feed his sheep. Peter, he was first among the apostles. He wanted to be the leader of the apostles. He always had something to say when Jesus said something. When Jesus talked about how he would suffer and die, Peter was very quick to be like, I will suffer and die with you. I'll hang on that cross right beside you. One time Jesus prophesies about his suffering and his death, and Peter says, may it never happen to you, Lord. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter talked a really good game, but when it came time for the crucifixion, he was nowhere to be found. He followed as far as the initial trial amongst the Sanhedrin, and while he was sitting outside, a couple people say, hey, I notice your accent. You're a Galilean. Someday when I'm in heaven, I want to know what a Galilean accent is. Like, you could tell me today, I'm still not going to understand, because I don't come from that area. It's like a southern drawl. Like, I can tell by the way you talk that you must be from Galilee. I don't know. But anyway, they're like, so you know him, right? He's like, I don't know him. And one person's like, no, no, you were his disciple, right? No, no, I don't know him. And then a slave girl talks to him, says, yeah, yeah, you're one of his disciples. I saw you. He curses himself and says, I don't know the man. Then he hears the rooster crow. Jesus dies. He's risen again. And he comes to find Peter where he found Peter initially, tending his nets, going back to fishing. And Jesus then recreates the first miracle he had with Peter by telling him to throw the nets on the other side. He brings in all the fish, 
He comes to the shore. He sees Jesus, and Jesus has a one-on-one with him. He asks him three times, just like they asked him if he knew Jesus. Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Peter responds in the affirmative. He uses a different word, but he says, yes, you know that I love you. Peter's very deeply hurt by this because three times he was asked, do you know him? And he said, no. But for three times Jesus said, do you love me? He says, yes. And each time Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. So Peter writes in his letter, and he tells them to be faithful because the shepherd's coming, the one who owns the sheep. So Peter, for all of his life, he associates feeding the sheep with loving Jesus. It's why I am so passionate about feeding you as God's sheep. You are not merchandise to me. You, you are not just people in a pew so people think I'm running a good church and doing a good job. I know that as I feed you, I am loving him. Peter, was, Peter wanted to be seen as first among the apostles, but first he had to become last and the servant of all, the feeder of the sheep. I wonder how many pastors will really get this crown or those who have REV by their name. I don't know, I can't see into hearts, but by judging from much of what you read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the greatest curses are reserved for unfaithful pastors and teachers, no matter how big their supposed ministry is. In Jude, it says that they are shepherds who feed themselves. And Peter says that they will make merchandise of you. The image of a shepherd who feeds themselves, it's connected very much to Joseph of the Old Testament. His brothers, who were supposed to be looking after the sheep of their father, take one of them, instead of feeding the sheep, they feed off of the sheep. They kill it, and they eat it. There are many people who, who pretend to be shepherds, but they look to make merchandise of you, to feed off of you. The worst curses are reserved for them, and the greatest blessing are for those who are faithful to God's word of feeding his sheep. That's a crown I want. The final crown is the crown of rejoicing. This is the soul winner's crown. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, For what is our hope, or joy, or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Sharing Jesus Christ to others. Okay. Allowing the Holy Spirit to work through you. They come to faith in Jesus Christ. You disciple them. There's such a joy in this to see the brothers and sisters you have in faith prospering in the faith. It's a crown of rejoicing. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved and long for, my joy and crown, so steadfast in the Lord, beloved. There is a joy that results from leading someone to the Lord and discipling them. It's a greater joy than most other joys. A lot of times, when it comes to the Great Commission, we, very, we really focus on the have-to about it. But we have to get from the have-to to the get-tos. This is a saying Rocky has, but I'm stealing it today. Get from the have-tos to the get-tos. I get to tell others about Jesus Christ and disciple them. It's a crown of rejoicing. Those are our five crowns right there. Treasures in heaven that await, for us, that await us. Let's talk about the crowns of Christ for a moment. 
There are two crowns that Jesus is mentioned wearing. Three, if you count that in general, that he is the king of kings and lord of lords and king of the universe. But there are two specific crowns that Jesus is seen wearing. The first one is the crown of thorns. Mind you, of John MacArthur's quote, the shadow of the cross looms over the manger. When you understand that, you understand Christmas. Invisible at the manger was a crown on baby Jesus' brow. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, but the first physical crown that Jesus would wear would be that of thorns. Jesus was born to die, and he died to be risen again. His crown of thorns was reveal, reveals what the unregenerate hearts think of God as their king. We have the words of the crowd, we have no king but Caesar. And of Pilate who said, shall I crucify your king? And the response, crucify him, crucify him. We romanticize the manger. We romanticize the manger. It looks so cute and perfect. But think of this. The God of all of the universe, who knows secret things you could not possibly imagine, in Revelation it says he has a name that only he knows. And he had glory with God the Father before the foundation of anything. He is God eternal. He condescends to become a baby. When you read the nativity, I hope it fills you with such dread to the thought that the king has come and the best humanity has is he gets to be born in a barn. It's like, I don't want to be called human because of that. That the king comes and he's born in a barn. They place him where the, where the animals feed. He is God who took on flesh, became fully human while still being fully God. No one has ever humbled themselves to that point. The band down here has a song, How Many Kings? It's a simple song. And ask the question, how many kings have done what Jesus have done? The answer is not a single one. None took off their royal robes and exchanged them for the clothes of a beggar. Not one stepped down from their throne to sit in the mud with the lowest. How many took off their golden bedrooled crowns to wear a crown of thorns? Not one could have and not one did, but only Jesus Christ. He was God in the beginning. Nothing that has been made was made without him. It is why in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11, it says this, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not, consider, did not count equality with God a thing to hold on to. But emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." He wears the Stephanos of thorns, but he also wears the diadem. The diadem. The other word for crown in the Bible is diadem. The diadem was a special crown. It wasn't known only for its ornateness or appearance, but it was known for its authority. 
for the Babylonians, for the Persians, for most of the world in the Old Testament, people lived in these city-states. But when these nations came about, they started conquering other states, and their kings would become king of kings. And they would wear the diadem as a symbol of their station. One of the things that they would do when they conquered another king, can you pull up the slide? I think it says enemy um, footstool. Hopefully you have good eyes. I, I don't know how, how well you can see this. But this right here is a piece of a wall that was found in ancient Assyria. It's of one of their kings. And you can see in this, the king is wearing his diadem around his turban. And he has his foot on the neck of a king he's conquered. The Persian kings went by a title you may have heard before. Their official title was the king of kings. That was their official title. If we go back to Revelation chapter 12, verse, chapter 19, verse 12, that Becca read at the beginning. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is Word of God. And on his robe and on his thigh are the name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Now you know the context of Revelation 19. It is not simply he is a king or a king of kings. But every pretender king is lower, subservient, under his foot. Every person who trusts in themselves is his enemy that will be put under his feet. But the person who submits is raised up. How does Christ get so many crowns? In Revelation 19, 12, it says he has many diadems. One way is being the creator and maker of all things just by nature of who he is. And the other is conquest. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 26, it tells us that Christ must reign until every enemy is put under his feet. The last enemy being death itself. That phrase, he must reign until he puts every enemy under his feet. That's what that looks like right there. Every enemy conquered. He is the king who puts his foot on their neck. They are under his feet. Not just in the ancient Near East, over much of the world. You don't show your foot to somebody else like I'm doing to you right now, which I guess is rude. Because that's the dirtiest part of your body. For a king to put his foot on somebody else, you're lower than the dirt. Every enemy will be put under his feet. In Judges, chapter, Joshua, sorry, Joshua chapter 10, verses 26 through 27, Joshua has the elders of the people put their feet on the necks of the five kings who are hiding. And in Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, Jesus quotes this to talk about himself. Let me read on. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This was a sign of humiliation and submission. Even death will have the Savior's foot on its neck. We used to sing a song in camp. Well, I went to the enemy's camp and I took back what he stole from me. And, I... and we have this like little phrase, he's under my feet, he's under my feet. Satan is under my feet. He's not. He's under my king's feet. So you better watch out. Because not me he has to worry about, it's the one who's my king. 
He bruised his heel, but my king crushed his head. In Joshua, once again, Joshua has the elders of the people put their feet on the necks of the five kings. It's quite a picture, isn't it? People sometimes see when we bow our knee to the Savior, like it is though he has his foot on our necks, that we have given up our freedom for slavery and oppression. However, the exact opposite is true. Slavery and oppression came through sin. The one who saves us from sin, we gratefully surrender to. Worship is what we do. In the book of Revelation, when I was teaching through this on Wednesday night, I, I pointed out specifically the incredible praise explosions that happen in heaven. God does something, and all of a sudden, heaven starts having this incredible party. And the first one is in Revelation chapter 4. In Revelation chapter 4 is a praise party in heaven. And it's crazy the things that are happening. The four cherubim are there. The cherubim, they... they they protected the people from the presence of God in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, they don't have a job anymore. The veil of the temple that had the cherubim on there was torn in two. We can now approach the throne of grace with confidence. So they get to go up to heaven. They serve the Lord both day and night, saying, holy, holy, holy. It's amazing. And at the crescendo of what is happening, the 24 elders, the 24 elders represent all believing people from the beginning to the end, they fall down and they worship. And they say what? Worthy are you, Lord, our, and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You ever wonder why I end my prayers with that? That's why I end my prayers with that. For you created all things, and, and by your will, you cre- they were created, they existing were created. But before that, verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before him, who is seated on the throne, and worship him who lives forever and ever. I hope you practice the presence of God and have worship like that in your own life. Because that's what worship is. It's not about singing songs. You can worship without singing songs. You know what worship is? We talked about the five crowns, right? These are things you get for submitting to Christ. These are things that speak so well of you. That this is what God has done in your life. Your character, your integrity, these things. The 24 elders, they have their crowns. And they are not commanded to, but in the presence of God himself, they worship and they lay down their crowns. It's what you do when you practice the presence of God in your worship. You get to such a point where you say, God, everything good in me, I lay at your feet. I don't glory in anything that I think is awesome in me, but I lay it down at your feet. I wish this was every worship service we had. It's not, though. It's actually really special, amazing times. Sometimes it's just us by ourselves. When I was preparing for that last marathon, I had a moment like this. And I'm so glad there's nobody around because I'm pretty sure they think I was just outrageous. I was just insane. I'm running one of the last longer runs before the marathon. It's 13 miles. And I'm getting towards the end. I'm listening to some songs. All of a sudden, I I wanted to switch to the song Before the Throne of God Above. And I start having this moment with God. Once again, it's great that nobody's around because I am screaming. I am beating my chest. I say, God, everything in me is for you. 
Everything good in me that anybody could possibly think or say, it's for you, it's in you, it's to you, for you made all things, and by your will they existed. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created. So during this Christmas, you give gifts to friends, you give gifts to family, but what gift do you have for the Savior? What gifts are you going to bring? Christmas is like a birthday party for Jesus, but most of the time we give gifts to each other. We give, but what gift do we have for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords today? In the song slash poem, In the Bleak Midwinter, written by an English lady, but it often, often gets confused as an Irish song, which I can see why. If you're going to pick a song, an Irish song for Christmas, a great name for it is in the bleak midwinter. It's like, unless it came from Iowa. Towards the end of the song is this line. What can I give him, speaking of, of Christ, what can I give him poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would give a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. But what can I give him? I will give him my heart. This Christmas, this series, born a child but yet a king, this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in your life. He is going to find areas that are not in submission to him. And he's going to tell you mine. And you can either, one, hold back and say, nope, nope, not, not for you. Separation of church and state or whatever you want to use for your excuse. Or you can say, you can take your crown and you can throw it at the, at the feet of Christ. And say, yours, yours. Maybe it's a matter of pride. Maybe it's a secret sin or whatever. Maybe it's the best in your life and you lay it down at his throne because this is what I'm praying that the Holy Spirit does in your life during this, that you come to the point that at Christmas Day, you're giving the gift that Christ wants that he paid for with his very blood. He was born a child, but yet a king. He has given you crowns. Will you now lay them at his feet? Worship team, would you come up at this time? As I'm preparing every week, where, whatever I'm doing, I ask myself this question, are the sheep going to eat? Am I going to be able to present something to you that is going to challenge you? Or something that's just going to be like, oh yeah, that's nice, and move on with your day. I pray that you are challenged in ways that you've never been challenged before. I hope it bothers you. Because it bothers me. <laughs> when I ask the Holy Spirit, and he finds something that is not in submission to him. And then I gratefully lay that down, because that's what worship is. Worship is sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when they talked about worship, they were talking about the sacrifices. In the New Testament, we are told that our spiritual act of worship is to be living sacrifice since it is christmas time we can see this as our greatest christmas gift is our worship to lay down our wants our desires to the kingship of jesus christ to know that whatever it is will be to our good and his glory would you please stand as we finish this last song